and welcome to How I Survived This, the totally badass and dramatic podcast, where we dive into the good, the not so good, and the totally badass journeys of women in the arts. I'm your host, Heather Corrigan. We're here today to learn about each of my guests' unique journeys, from their wins to their darkest hours and all of the dramatic moments in between. This week's guest is a fellow USC School of Theater grad who then went on to get a master's in producing at Columbia University and spent 10 years at one of the top advertising firms in the world. This experience and her love of theater as a performer and patron led her to delve into the role of producer. And produce she has. A two-time Tony nominee, Olivier nominee, and an Evening Standard winner, she is currently co-producing three shows on Broadway, including A Doll's House, Funny Girl, and the new Britney Spears musical, One More Time, and co-producing The Secret Garden at the Amundsen Theater in L.A., She is also on the team of the Broadway Museum and doing all of this in a post-pandemic theater world in New York City while raising her adorable son, John, and running her own production company. I am so excited to talk with her. Kate Canova, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to be thought of. (laughs) Of course. You're so welcome. I can't believe that even though we have so many cross-sections of our life, so many intersections where we should have met many, many, many times prior that you and I met because you, again, produced a show, Tell the Audience, Uh, the one that you and Charles and I went to. So uh, it was called A Commercial Jingle for Regina Comet, and it opened off-Broadway right at the beginning of the reopening of theater in New York. So it was actually the first new musical to premiere post pandemic and our little teeny tiny engine that could this tiny little show with three actors and three musicians put 50 theater artists in New York city back to work, like right as theater was reopening. So it was, it was a fun show an amazing, an amazing show and just really fun and like proud to be a, a part of it. It was just sort of a, a very small little thing, but um, to have it be part of that revitalization and to give some audiences just the chance to like come to the theater and laugh and, you know, have a good time and, and not be like super stressed was like really wonderful. So I can't tell you how that will be sort of in my bones for the rest of my life, that feeling, because that was my first moment back in live theater after Gestures Grandly, everything that happened. (laughs) And I had left New York City. I hadn't seen anyone. I certainly hadn't been in a small enclosed space. And to actually see live theater and musical theater at that with singing and live music, it penetrated my soul in a way that was so cathartic and so important at that time. And I can only think that it was the same for most, if not all, of the audience members that got the chance to see Regina Comet, because it was so, it wasn't like going to a Greek tragedy. It was light and fun, but it had a, it had a purpose, it had a point, and it had gravitas to it and also levity. Um, so it was it was the first thing that I saw as well, and it was so meaningful to have that be it. And then on top of that, meet you for the first time and 
be pulled into this world of USC alumni that I I had not sort of ventured into. For some reason, I had just not been introduced to it. Um, yeah, girl, where point. you been? We've been here. I don't know. Where you been? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anybody? Hello? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what happened. But um, yeah, it was truly, truly great. And that was the first time that we met. And we met um, through Charles, Charles Brown, who is just one of the greatest humans alive. <laughs> True. Um, although I think you mean <clears throat> Tony Award nominee, Charles Brown, who is one of the greatest humans alive. <laughs> yes. I, I do believe so. Yeah. Are you listening, Charles? <laughs> he will be because I will send him this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so let's reverse prior to USC. Did you get the theater bug as a tiny little Kate? Oh, yeah. And and oh, just yeah. sing and dance around the living room? How did that 100%. all transpire? Um, no, I mean, I was just like so many other little girls, um, uh, you know, coast to coast around the world whose parents stuck her in dance class at two and a half, you know, and it just was like a very kind of natural progression. I've, I've always been, um, I think my dad likes to use the word loquacious, but I always had a lot of energy and you know, um, was a little bit of a creative soul. So I sang and I danced and I learned how to play the piano and um, I kind of just did all of that. And I started performing in plays and musicals when I was in elementary school. And I just loved it I, for all kinds of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. None of them are necessarily revolutionary, but I, you know, I just really loved it. And, um, and I guess it just never really sort of occurred to me that having a career in the arts wasn't possible. Um, but like, granted, that's because I, you know, I have the privilege that I have, right? You know, I grew up in a in an environment in which my parents were, you know, smart and hardworking and, uh, you know, had been to college and had basically busted their asses to make sure that their kids could do what they wanted to do with their lives. And, you know, the fact that I had this love and this passion, it was like not necessarily weird or unsupported or, or any of those things. So it just like never occurred to me that, you know, choosing a career in the arts would be um, like out of reach. So, you know, it was just something I, I pursued as a kid. And then um, I had the chance to audition for a Broadway musical uh, when I was... I think the first time I, uh, actually, no, I, I was 11 years old and I did not get into the show. And I was like, kind of bummed about it. Um, but, you know, not getting things is a really important sort of <laughs> journey of learning in life. And also it was like kind of the first time that I really experienced the idea that everything sort of happens the way that it's supposed to happen because the show that I had not originally been cast in was supposed to be an 11 week limited engagement. And they wound up extending the production. And when they did that, for whatever reason, they decided to recast. And so while I didn't get it the first time around, I did get it the second time around. And so I made my Broadway debut in February of, oh God, I don't know. I wanna say it was 93 or maybe 94. Right. Um, and and that was like sort of just it. Um, what show was that? Oh, 
It's so cheesy. I like never really want to tell people. What oh no! <laughs> oh man, I'd be so thrilled if I was on Broadway. Oh, it was really cheesy. So it was uh, the revival of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, starring uh, Michael Damien of The Young and the Restless. And like when I tell you, I wore white culottes in the show. I'm not even joking. I was just so. Bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I basically have post-traumatic culotte disorder. Like, I can't deal with it. Um, can't see you in a pair of culottes <laughs> no, at this point. No, no one never. should ever be seen in a pair of culottes again. But um, so, yeah, and that was it. So I always just, like, I performed. I, you know, performed through my whole childhood. And then, you know, when it was time to go to college, there was, like, never any question that I would major in something else. Like, that wasn't really, like, a thing. So, you know, I went into the the college process sort of with no limitations and I looked at everything and I applied to all these things and I went on all the auditions and I like did all the stuff that you were supposed to do. Um, and uh, I, I actually, even though it makes no sense whatsoever, uh, wanted to go to the Sorbonne, which is in France. <laughs> my, my mom put her foot down and was like, you absolutely cannot go over an ocean to go to college. And I was like, okay. So then I was like, what's equally as far away from New York as Paris? <laughs> so that happened to be LA. But in all seriousness, like, I guess like the quote unquote starving artist life was like not something that I was ever interested in. So I figured I'll go to LA. You know, I've had this sort of theatrical life um, here in New York. So I will go to LA and I'll do TV and film. And that way, like I, you know, won't have to starve and I'll make some yeah. money in Hollywood. And then I'll come back to New York and be a Broadway star as one thinks when one is 17 years old and has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. But that's exactly what I did. So I, I applied to USC. I got in, which was amazing. Although I think now fast forward 20 years, I probably would not get in. Same. No. <laughs> So I applied to USC. I got in. It was really amazing. And I sort of just decided to go, even though I had never set foot in California in my life. And I went and it was like the best, the best. Um, I loved it so much. I love it to this day. I'm still a super big nerd about it. I'm a very active alumni, as you know. So, and I have- Yes, we'll have to talk about that because I am a- guilty, non-active <laughs> alumni. So yes. perhaps you can indoctrinate me. Yes. You and I have very similar stories as far as East Coast to West Coast. Um, also, I share that naivete about just like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I had very supportive parents and I'm off to college. And obviously I'm going to be a theater major because I'm going to be an actress. And then I'll just work and support myself and be on TV, film, and Broadway. Duh. Right. Duh. So, duh. Yeah. Um, but I did step foot on the campus of USC for the first time after I had been accepted. Um, and I had visited Southern California for like a weekend, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved it. I thought it was the best of both worlds. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, you know, I loved school. Like the people are so amazing and the classes were amazing. And, um, you know, I, 
I sort of fell in love with some of the faculty like during the audition process. So I was really excited about the whole thing. But like, I also was like a total asshole. Like I was a complete and total asshole. Like I went there and I went on all these auditions and I would be like, what do you mean I didn't get the lead in this show? I've been on Broadway. Like I was such a, like, I was so just out of my mind. Like, you know, it just didn't occur to me that acting for the camera was different than being on stage. Like, you know what I mean? I just didn't know. And some of it was because like, I was just young and, and naive, but some of it was also because I was very much what I would call, like, this is not a real phrase, but I would sort of call it like an independent creative kid. Like I didn't have a crazy stage mom who was dragging me from audition to audition and putting me in all these lessons and, you know, spending hours putting sequins on leotards and, you know, looking at all the industry gossip and things like that. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that. Like, that's amazing. It's just not what we were. It was like my mom showed up to the seventh grade musical and found out that I had the lead and then had a panic attack because she wasn't even really sure that I could sing. And she was like, oh my God, is this going to be a disaster or what? Um, So it's possible that I, like, I just did, I just didn't really know how things worked because it's not like I grew up kind of in that sort of calculated political environment. Um, yeah. You know, and I had gone my whole life, like getting the lead in every show. And I was like, of course, why wouldn't I? Right. Like, why wouldn't the same thing just continue? But the, the refreshing and very um, like amazing thing about going to school and going to school at USC is that I very quickly realized that not only was I not the most talented person in the room, but I more often than not wasn't even in like the top 50% of any kid in any class, which is great because like that's exactly when you're supposed to figure that stuff out. Um, not that I didn't, I mean, I got cast and I worked and I had an agent and I booked jobs and it was all those, it, everything was fine. It was all good. Um, and I loved it and I still love it, but to be in some of those rehearsal rooms or, or, you know, working with some, some actors of just like a level of talent that on my best day, I could never reproduce even 50% of, you know, it was really sort of humbling and um, instructive to the extent that like, I knew I wanted to make things like I knew I wanted to be a storyteller Um, you know, and I knew that I was really good at things like, um, you know, uh, crisis management (laughs) and, um, finding solutions and putting people together and, you know, working things out. And so I think like that time was very helpful to me in terms of laying the foundation of well, maybe there's like a different way that I'm supposed to express this part of myself. Like maybe my talent isn't to be on the stage. Maybe my talent is about how to make that work for other people in a way that's like really extraordinary and meaningful. Um, And so actually, I mean, I really did start producing while I was at USC. Um, Oh, did you really? Mostly just because, you know, in LA being a bunch of theater nerds, there's not exactly like, maybe it's better now, but there's not exactly this wealth of theatrical opportunity for young theatrical 
performers in LA. So, you know, I really no. started producing to give myself and my USC college friends performance opportunities. Right. And was that um, musical theater and legit theater at, during that time? Um, no, it was just, honestly, it all started as so many people have said. It all started with a production of The Vagina Monologues. Oh my God. <laughs> Not even fucking around, like 100%. Oh, my God. That's really how it all started. Um, So, no, I really wasn't, like, quote, unquote, producing musicals. And to be honest, like, I left L.A. in 2006. So um, I was only there for a few years after I graduated. To be honest with you, I, you know, and no offense to the the listeners out there, but, like, L.A. is not my flavor. It's just not No, it's brutal. Um, I, I... I agree with you, especially coming from the East Coast. And I'm gathering that you grew up near New York City. I grew up in New York, yeah. Yeah. So it, there's just, there's no comparison. I think I, I stayed out there for a few years longer than you did, but I definitely did not have ever that feeling of like, ah, this is home. Mm-hmm. Um, so shooting back to New York always made the most sense. Yeah. Just feels more like home. When you were auditioning for a TV film, either while you were in school or directly afterwards, were those some of the moments, and I know you say simultaneously, you were already sort of tinkering with the idea of like, okay, I'm really good at crisis management. I'm really good at putting people together. I'm organized. I'm smart. I love theater. Like I kind of have this other niche. But did you have any of those moments where you were like, what the fuck? Why am I not booking? And did they, did the reality of, of, oh, maybe this is a little like trickier than I thought it was going to be? Did you, did that hit in a certain way? Or were you already sort of like, you know what? Nah, not going to lose any sleep over this. I'm moving on. Um, well, I, I mean, (laughs) Uh, the answer is actually no, because I didn't, I sort of had a very um, unique problem. I was like the queen of booking and yet never shooting. Like oh. I booked all the time. So my very first audition, I went out, I booked a national commercial for United Healthcare that was supposed to air during the Super Bowl. And I got oh fired God. during the costume fitting. Like literally, I was standing in the thing on the platform getting pants hemmed, and they fired me while I was getting my pants hemmed. <laughs> what? No explanation? Just- no, there was there was an explanation. I mean, you know, and having now worked in the advertising world, I have much more insight insight into this now than I did then. But the client changed their mind, and they no longer wanted a, a teenage girl, they wanted a 65-year-old man. And so I was out of a job. Although technically they did pay me, which was really nice. So I still got paid. I just didn't shoot. And then I, another example is that um, I booked a show. I'm not going to tell you the name of the show, but I booked a show. I went straight to producers and then booked a show on HBO. And it was going to be like my first big job and I was like super excited about it. And I, it was very clear that like I was, (laughs) you know, 21 playing 16. Mm -hmm. Um, The show was what I would call more mature content. 
Um, so, you know, I was definitely 21 playing 16. And during the, the process of rewrites, that 16 year old became a 13 year old. And I was once again out of a job. So I was like the queen of booking everything that I went out for. But like whether or not it actually happened was like a different story. <laughs> wow. But like, honestly, I don't know, whatever. I don't even really think about that part of my life that much anymore. Well, that's very healthy. Yeah. I mean, other than uh, other than that, it, it's like informative because I like to remember what it feels like to be a creating artist in a supportive environment. Mm-hmm. So like, I like to remind myself of the times that I've been in the room where I've felt like really supported and like safe and I'm working with a great group of people because I want to make sure that I'm now like recreating that feeling for the performers and the actors that are working in rooms that I'm running. In general, uh, how things, you know, some people hate the, oh, everything happens for a reason, but it, in keeping with the idea of like, what is meant for you will not pass you by kind of thing. So what you decided to how you decided to sort of look at all of these things of being like, well, I'm in my khakis ready to do this United Healthcare commercial and scene. And I'm like ready to play this teen. Oh, okay. It's been rewritten. Not for me, not for me, not for me. But then to be able to have the, um, gosh, just the healthy perspective of taking all of that in and then taking your experiences of what they felt, of of the good experiences of what they felt like when you were in that show and in that cast and in those those rooms as an actor and on stage as an actor and then be able to be like, okay, I'm going to flip the script and make sure that I'm providing on the other side of the table, providing that same feeling to these actors and musicians and writers and directors and musical directors that I felt when I was on the other side. I, I just I just think that to know that very early on and to not have it destroy you in any way, I think all too often sometimes in this business, we hang on for dear life that, that something should look a certain way and it has to be this way. And if it doesn't go that way, then then I'm just going to push harder. And you were like, it's not going that way. It's going this way. And you chose to follow that. And I just I just think that that's to have done that like right away um, is very cool. Well, this might be like kind of an unpopular opinion, but it's called show business. It's not called show pilgrimage or show vocation or show passion or, you know, show calling it's called show business. So if mm-hmm. you can't approach it that way, you're already setting yourself up for a very angsty sort of life, <laughs> I think. I think actors get in trouble with that that dichotomy of like, okay, as an actor, we're supposed to be able to feel all of these things and all of these emotions and be sort of angsty in general, right, if we have a certain mm-hmm. part to play. But that doesn't mean that your whole life has to be that way. And that also doesn't mean that just because you want to take this as a business, that it doesn't mean that you're treating your craft with any less care. Right. I I think that it is a huge problem. And I fell into that trap completely. Well, I also just think that like, you know, being an actor, like so much of your vocation is like wrapped up in your identity and vice versa. So we take everything really personally And at least in my experience, 
my experience being in LA, which I do think is like a different marketplace, but my experience of being in LA is that, you know, when you're going into an audition for a commercial or even for a TV show, whatever, you know, half the time they've made up their mind about you before you've even come into the room. 100%. And especially if you're going in for a commercial, like they basically decide on you the second that you walk in the door before you've even had a moment to say hello or, you know, open your mouth. And, and for me, and again, like everybody has their own experience and I don't mean to, to be dismissive or pejorative, but for me, how could I take that personally? Because they haven't met me as a person. It has nothing to do with me because what it has to do with is the idea or the vision that they have in their head which they're totally entitled to as the creator or the client or the agency or whatever. So like if I walk in the door and I don't look like what they had in mind and they choose not to consider what else I might have to offer, great, good for them. Like I have now the freedom and the liberation to go and do the next thing that's maybe more worthy of my time. Um, and I just think that like, I don't know. I, I I mean, it's it sounds flippant, right? Like I don't I don't mean to be glib about it, but like I also no, made, not at all. I made a I mean, lot of decisions. I, yeah, I made a lot of decisions about what my life was going to be when I left New York to go to LA. Mm -hmm. Like you know, like so many of us, like I didn't have the greatest time in middle school. I didn't have the greatest time in high school, and like. I said to myself, listen, if I'm going to go move across the country where I know nobody and I'm going to start this whole new thing, like that's really it. I'm talking about a clean break, like a blank piece of paper. So I moved away and I literally never spoke to anybody that I went to high school with ever again, mm -hmm. ever. And so I said, okay, I'm making this decision that all that shit and all that baggage and all that like deriving my worth from the perception of other people and all that self-esteem bullshit and all this kind of shit, I just wasn't going to do it. So I went in and I was like, this is who I am. This is what you get. I'm a hard worker. I'm like decently talented. I definitely can carry a tune. You know, if you want to hire me, great. Like I'll work my ass off for you. And if you don't, great. Because if you don't want me to be there, then I don't want to be there. It's like, you know what I mean? So it wasn't, I just never was in this place where it was like, oh my God, if I don't get this part, I'm just going to like lie on the side of the road and, and wait for the elements to take me. I, I don't know. I know I know it sounds like crazy and ridiculous, but- I know. I mean, if only I had had just an uh, an inkling of, of that, like a sprinkle, if you could have sprinkled some of that on myself and probably many, many, many other actors that, I, that I'm friends with or that I've worked with over the years, uh, just to sort of save a lot of, angst, a lot of energy, a lot of wasted time thinking that it had anything to do with you. And that's that's the same thing for other life things that happen as yeah. well. I just think it's I like mean, my mind is sort of like, my God, she's right. <laughs> well, I, I listen, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm wired like a New Yorker. I don't really know. But like, I don't know. I guess I just or maybe it was how I was raised. It's like things don't just get handed to you. Like mm -hmm. you don't deserve things just because you're great at something. You know what I mean? Like there's no such thing necessarily as luck, although there really is luck, but like, you know what I mean? Like you have to hustle. And if you don't get that job or you don't get that audition, or it's been a year and you haven't booked anything or anything that you've liked or anything that you would want your grandmother to see in a movie theater, then like, just go make a thing, go make mm -hmm. the thing. 
Like don't like nobody's like sitting around someday like thinking about you saying, you know what, you know, today is the day that I'm going to go change Kate Canova's life. Like it's nobody else's job to change my life. It's my job to change my life. So if I'm not getting what I want or what I need from other people, then it's my responsibility to go make that thing that I want or need. You know what I mean? It's just like when you go to college or like, you know, when you get a new job, like what you get out of it is what you're willing to put into it. You know what I mean? Like your agent gets 10% because they should only be doing 10% of your job. 10%, like the other 90% has to come from you, right? So it drives me crazy when people complain about, um, not that their agents aren't working hard enough for them. And you have, you sit down and you have a real conversation with your friend or your colleague and you say, well, you know, how's your real and what are you doing? And, you know, and I've been guilty of that as well, not necessarily with representation, but not having my materials lined up, but then thinking that why isn't the phone ringing? And it's like, oh, because you're not putting yourself, you're not doing the work. You're not putting in the work in that way. You know, it's not like I woke up one day and I said, I'm not going to perform anymore. Like I performed up until the the very last day that my body said, this is something that you can do. You know what I mean? Um, and I was already producing and all of that was great. But, you know, I stopped performing because, you know, I blew a giant hole in my vocal cord that cannot be fixed. And so it just wasn't a reality for me anymore to live that life, at least not in the theater, because I vocally can barely sustain one session of drunken karaoke, much less eight shows a week. But I, I produced something, you know, in the in the late 2000s. And it was like sort of magical. And I was standing in the back of the house, like watching this thing happen. And I realized that the feeling that I was experiencing standing in the back of the house in the dark, totally anonymous, was exactly the same feeling that I used to get standing downstage center, taking that solo bow at the end of the show. And I was like, and that, that was the deciding factor for me. That was when the switch flipped. And I was like, this is my life now. And honestly, like no offense to actors because they're amazing and talented and beautiful. And I literally rely on them, but like my job is better than yours. Because my job is Santa Claus. My job is Santa Claus. My job is getting to make the dreams of those actors come true or those composers or those creators. Like it doesn't get better than that. And it's stressful as fuck. And it's so fucking scary. And like you lose a lot of sleep over it. You lose a lot of hair over it. I don't seem to lose any weight over it. I'm not sure why that doesn't happen for me, but like but when it when all the stars align and everything falls and you've been busting your ass and everything that you're working for is starting to come true and you sit there in a room behind that table next to those writers as they're watching their piece like be manifested and brought to life by insanely talented people like that is it's fucking magic it's magical it is the greatest gift in the world i'm just so blown away by your perspective on everything and um, it's just so refreshing and and healthy and like I'm gonna stop you because like I I it's it's all lovely and like so flattering, but you're like don't give me too much too much credit here because like I would describe nothing about what my life is as healthy. So I'm just I'm putting that right out there. There is <laughs> something that I have mastered called toxic productivity. Um, I don't know if that's real, if I stole it, if I just made it up, but like that is my life. I, it is toxically productive. 
too busy, like too spread thin, not enough resources, not enough time, not enough time with my kid, not enough time with my husband. You know, it's not all, it's not like, you know, I'm not like the Oprah of producing. It is like the absolute opposite of that situation. You know what I mean? It's not like I am some, you know, big producer with my fancy producer offices and all my producer assistants running around and my producer office copy machine and all of those things. Like, no, like here I am 30 years in Broadway, you know, 13 years into producing on Broadway. And I am still Frankensteining it together. Like as most young producers, my age are right. So, you know, especially post pandemic, um, I still, at this point in my life, in my 40s, it's not like I get to look around and call this my my full-time job. Or it is my full-time job, but it's not my only full-time job. Right. You know, like I, I worked in corporate America for 20 years. In the summer of 2019, I like could no longer sort of stomach how unfulfilled I was in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not uh, believe that I was contributing to the world, you know, as a, as a decent global citizen at that time. And I like, was like, I need to sort of like leave this life. And so, you know, I, I wound up quitting my corporate job in November of 2019 Mm. just to run my production company. Finally, after, you know, two decades of having a Clark Kent and a Superman, you know, and so, and I had this like three or three and a half months of like blissful, Yes, like whatever Shonda Rhyme calls it, the the three months of yes or the year oh, yeah. of yes. It was like, yes, yes, I will. Yes, I will come to your reading at three o'clock on a Tuesday, or like yes, I will have coffee, or you know, um, you know, yes, I'll come see the show, or you know. So I just was doing my thing, and I was like so blissfully happy. And then of course the whole world shut down, and then I went from blissfully happy to like. Um, if you're a fan of The Princess Bride, I was in the pit of despair, you know, <laughs> like, there you so, go. as so many were, but like, you know, my husband owns his own business. Um, he, he owns a company, he has employees and, and all of those things. And we didn't know how that was going to go. And I had just quit my corporate job. And mm-hmm. so that safety net was gone and, you know, Broadway closed and the live event space closed and the trade show space closed and like every possible source of income that we have was totally, you know, questionable. Right. So it's like, well, what the fuck am I going to do now? Um, right. You know, and then you're just in this crazy situation where you are like in survival mode and you're like, I'm trapped in my New York City apartment, you know, shooting people with paintball guns over, you know, Clorox wipes with a three-year-old. And am I supposed to be teaching that kid to read? I don't know. Like, what do you learn when you're three? I don't know. Um you know, and you, I mean, it's like dark times, right? So you, you're trying to find a way to continue to create and to protect that part of your spirit and your life, but you also need to figure out how you're going to pay your rent. And, you know, for better or worse, like I turned right around to the corporate gods that had kept me fed for so long. And I was like, you know, I'll do freelance work for you and freelance work for like, you get a freelancer and you get a freelancer and you, I was the Oprah of freelancer. So I'm not the Oprah of producing, but I was the Oprah of freelancing. So everybody got a freelance gig. And so I just was like working myself into like an early grave, um, taking care of my son while my husband was going out into the pandemic every day, trying to keep the lights on at his company going like, how long can I survive like this? Mm -hmm. Like how long can I parent basically alone 
and work, uh, you know, 20 hours a day and not sleep and be scared all the time. Right. And like, how long can I do it? Well, if you want to know the answer, the answer is five months. Five months is how long I could do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is the what, answer. <laughs> what happened? What happened at five months? Um, so at five months, my son's daycare reopened. Oh. And I'm telling you, I was the first person in line. Like all the other moms were like, oh my God, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we're ready. I think we're going to give it a couple of weeks and see. Meanwhile, I was like sleeping on the sidewalk the night before so that I could be there when they unlocked the door in the morning. And I was like, here, take this child. Um, <laughs> you know, but you know, fortunately I was very lucky because while well, I had corporate clients to, to go to, but also like my husband, you know, was willing to like, let me come and work with him. Like he needed the help at the time. And so, um, you know, he was in the process of buying out his partner and taking over the company, which is really hard to do in the middle of a global lockdown. And so all of those consulting skills and, and advertising skills and the crisis management skills that I'm so good at were all transferable to running a small family-owned e-commerce auto replacement parts company, as it turns out. So, you know, I started working with him and that's what I did the entire pandemic. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back to having my corporate Clark Kent of a life. Right. Um, you know, but it, it allows me to keep the Superman Broadway side of it going. So, yeah, I mean, I'm here every day in the office doing that and doing this. And so, I have a long history of toxic productivity. I actually decided the other day that I should write a book about toxic productivity, but I realized since I have no helpful advice or cure to give people, it would really not be a self-help book. Like there's no end to the book. So, you know, there's you no heard, end. You heard it here first, people. 10 years from now, I'm going to write a book about toxic productivity and how to break the cycle. <laughs> By then, maybe I will have figured it out. Right, because right now you're just in the middle of it. it oh, it's terrible. Like. And like one of my producing partners, she's also a Trojan. Um, every day we say to each other, today we're going to say no to something. Today we're going to say no. And sometimes we do, but then sometimes something comes across our desk and one of us will call the other and be like, I know we said that we weren't going to do anything <laughs> else, but like, do, should we do this one thing? Um, it's really bad. So we're enabling each other, which is not great. But yeah, so it's, you know, it's definitely, it's a lot. Well, while we're, while we're talking about all of the things that are a lot, I know that in the intro, I sort of ran down the list of the three shows on Broadway and the one at, at the Amundsen and the Broadway Museum. Um, and now also Trails and Trails is like, I saw it at NIMF years and years and years ago in the first iteration, I believe, in the New York Musical Theater Festival, for those of you who aren't um, familiar with the acronym. But uh, aside from those, I just want to touch on the world of theater post-pandemic. I know that we did, you know, you did Regina Comet as the first show, and then you jumped in and said yes to being on the team of the Broadway Museum. How, how is that going? The museum is the museum is just really so special and spectacular. And every time I'm in there, I'm just so blown away by it. Um, and like 
when you're ready to have the museum co-founders on your podcast, let me know because they too are badass women, both of whom are Trojans, I might add. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. So they, they can, <laughs> so I'm, I'm offering them up to you. Um, but, you know, the museum is such a special thing. It's, it's hard to believe it's never been done before. It really truly is. I mean, you look at you look at the history of theater, you look at the history of the musical theater canon, you look at New York City, just those three things combined. And then the fact that New York has all of these museums with all of this stationary art, I'd like to call it, and nothing has been done for this art form. Is well, this exhibit, a per, is this a permanent space for this location? Yes, That's it's a permanent space. Um, I think initially, like a thousand years ago, when Julie was like, first dreaming it up, Julie Boardman. Um, I think initially she was like, oh, this could be a cool pop-up, but then that is not what happened, obviously. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the thing is, it's not like there's never been this idea to do it, but in the, <laughs> as we're talking about people who say no and people who say yes, I mean, it really, it required everybody to say yes all the theater owners, all the estates, like all the the creators whose work is featured, all the participants, all the investors. It, t- it took so many people to say yes. And in order to get that level of universal buy-in, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it really takes a special kind of alchemy to get that done. And so the, the museum is, our doors are open. It is fabulous. It is for everyone, um, you know, you have to come. Everybody should come. Get your tickets. A portion of every ticket is donated to TDF, and you can have whatever kind of experience you want. You can be in and out in an hour, or you can take a day per floor. There's so much to see and do and experience, and it's such a unique approach because it, it certainly is that sort of like Instagrammable, immersive kind of commercial, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the level of artifact, it is unbelievable. Yeah. The amount of um, the history, the, the history, the costumes, the people's shoes and set models and hand scribbled notes and cocktail napkins with, with music staffs on them and original fabric swatches. I mean, there's just, there's stuff everywhere. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, I need to go. I, 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 I have not been, and I need to go back to New York city. It's one of the, one of the things that's on the list when I go back there. Also seeing a number of these shows that you are producing. Um, I have a few more questions just in the general scheme of life. I know that you said you went to LA and you went to Disneyland um, and you are currently probably stretched thin because we, we don't know how to say no to things, but what um, anything on the back burner that's uh, not out yet that you're working on? Um, Gosh. Okay. So, well, so you know what's sort of up and running now. Um, Funny Girl um, will start to tour in September. Mm-hmm. And The Secret Garden will also eventually start to tour. And then The Kite Runner, which I produced on Broadway last year, that tour will begin in the spring. Amazing. Um, so we've started to announce a couple of dates. I'm not allowed to share all of them, or even some of the most exciting ones. Um, but that tour will kick off in the spring in Arizona and then head to Pittsburgh 
Um, and then I'm not allowed to talk about the rest. Um, and then as you know, uh, we're, we're working on trails, which is, you know, getting ready to like live its best life out in the world, which is really exciting. I cannot say more than that right now, but stay tuned. Oh, everybody, you must see this show. It's delightful. Uh, I just, I can't wait to see what you guys do with it, what the next iteration of it is. Yeah, it's really exciting. And we have a, a wonderful director attached and we're working with a sort of a well-known nonprofit partner, but like nothing. I just, that's, I can't just, I can't say really anything, but it's <laughs> okay. going to be amazing and stay tuned. And then I'm also working on a brand new show that's much earlier in its life cycle um, with two brand new writers. Um, it's called Cursed. And, um, you know, this was something that I was sort of introduced to literally right before the pandemic. I think it was the last coffee date I went on before everything shut down. And we did like a little bit of like some fun work on it during the lockdown. We produced like, um, I produced like a little concert version of it, just the song, because the music is like so incredible. Um, so that was really great. We had um, like Bonnie Milligan and and Donald oh. Weber Jr. and Devin Elon. And um, we had like an incredible group of people who um, sort of gave their <laughs> time and talents to make this concert, which like is crazy because in hindsight now to watch it back and be like, I cannot believe that we did this yeah. without anybody ever being in the same room as one another is like crazy to me. And it's still like, you can still see it online. Um, it's at, um, I, I think it's cursethemusical.com or themusicalcurse.com. You can still see it there. Um, and it's just, it still boggles my mind that we managed to do that. Like everybody completely in isolation. Um, but that, you know, that is now sort of where, where, where working, um, the writers and I are really working on tearing it apart and putting it back together and really sort of getting the narrative structure kind of evolving and moving forward. So, you know, that, but that's like very, that's very early. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for one second because I think I need a little education on what your role as a producer in developmental productions would look like. So you're working directly with the creators and writers, but then you're also putting together the team and also doing the funding. The team, the financing, the contract negotiations, the insurance, the venue, the, the venue. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you're a producer, you know, when you're the lead producer of a project, you're essentially the CEO of a company, right? The, the buck starts and stops with you. You have the fiduciary obligations, the legal obligations, the creative obligations. Um, you know, it's basically you're doing all the hiring and firing and, and, yeah. and all of that. So, um, you know, and you do what needs to get done to give the piece the best chance at a life. And if that means that you're locked in a room with the authors for five days, sweating <laughs> with a right. Sharpie and a post-it and a bunch of, you know, sticky notes and dots, and it looks like an episode of CSI on the walls, um, you know, as you're killing characters off or bringing them to life or whatever it is, then that's what you do. So. Oh, wow. I, I just, I think I didn't realize that it would have that creative element as well as the other uh, pieces as well, like just right down to the bare bones, to the nitty gritty of like being in the room, helping with the the rewrites and the creativity of it. I mean, it's basically becomes as much as the creator, it basically becomes your baby. 
And yeah, I mean, it ha- like if you're the lead producer of anything, it has to be your baby. And obviously every, every project is different and, and how a produce, like how, how, um, how dirty you get your hands on each thing is always going to be a little different, but um, if it's not your baby, then <laughs> right, it's going to be. You a have slug. to find somebody who's going to who's going to treat it like it is. I mean, it's it's a tremendous responsibility. It's not just you know the the creative um, offspring of of the writers and and everybody involved, but you know this is these are people's investments. It's millions of dollars of of money, but it's also people's livelihoods. You know, yeah. Um, you know, you put a show up and you're a big Broadway musical. It's hundreds of people that, that have their, their livelihoods on the line. So it's a really, really tremendous responsibility. Oh, and it's, it's such an honor. And I'm, I I don't know, it's a responsibility. And also it must feel really great at the end of the day when, when you do see something up on that stage and you can stand in the back of the theater and be like, and have that same feeling. There's nothing like it. You know, there's nothing like, I mean, half the time when I go to the theater, especially if it's one of my own shows, I'm actually not watching the show. I'm watching the audience watch the show. Absolutely. Um, And it's, that's like the best thing about it. So, you know, I've seen, I've had people come to me and say, you know, that this show changed my life. I've never seen anybody like me before on a state. Like, you know, it's really, really meaningful to people. It's really meaningful to have that community sort of catharsis. There's nothing like a live experience. And like, so as we like move forward in the world and we try to figure out what our new normal is, yeah, you know, I just would say to everybody, like, go to the theater. I don't care if you're in New York or you're in Kalamazoo, get in that room in the dark, shut off your phone, like just live that experience with the people around you, support those artists and just let it change you. For the love of God, just be there and be present and just let it do to you whatever that story is going to do. Um, and we will all be better for it. Please go to the theater. Go to the theater. Let it change your life. And I think that's it. What Kate said. Kate, it has been an absolute pleasure and also an education. So, oh, Jesus. Well, no, I just thank you so much for taking the time. Mine. The pleasure was all mine. I mean, thank you for taking time. Thank you for saying yes. Because oh my God, thank you for asking. <laughs> like I said, my mother always said I had a face for podcasts. So, oh my you know. God. Well, I hope those. Uh, I hope those Delta headphones worked out great. They sounded They're great. Terrible. Over here. You literally sound like you're calling me from the bottom of a soup can. It's awful. It's so bad. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I will let you move on to all of the millions of things you've got going on. I can't thank you enough. And I hope I get to see you soon and do what Kate said. Go to the theater. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created and produced by Heather Corrigan and Robin Lai. We would like to thank our guest, Kate Canova, for joining us today. This episode was directed by Robin Lai with assistance from content editor Neve McAuliffe. Post-production by JMM Latam and mastered by Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Special thanks to Boom Integrated and Adrian Glover. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share it with all of your friends. Tune in next week as we bring you more women's stories that are totally badass and dramatic.